Hi, I'm Susan Foch, and when I was 18 years old, I launched a national nonprofit organization out of my freshman college dorm room. Now, with almost a decade of experience under my belt, I'm here to teach you my tried and true tips and tricks for running your own nonprofit or social enterprise and how to build it from the ground up. You're listening to this podcast because you're ready to make a difference in this world. I see you, I hear you, and I'm ready to help you. Now let's make an impact together. You're listening to the Make an Impact Podcast, episode 24. Should you go to grad school? Do you need a master's degree to be successful in the nonprofit industry? Why did I decide to get a master's degree? All questions I get all the time, (laughs) on top of just questions in general about the public policy field, a little bit more of what that entails, because I think public policy sounds like a really uh, terrifying, like all-encompassing word that sounds like government, and it just scares people. (laughs) So they don't understand what it means. Um, First of all, if you are new here, hello, welcome. And if you haven't been with me for a long time, you might not know this. So I have a bachelor's in human services leadership and business from the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh. But this year, I also got my master's degree um, in public policy and administration from Northwestern University, which was crazy. Holy bananas. Um, really amazing experience. I feel so lucky and honestly that's like one of the largest accomplishments I think I've done in my life was uh, complete my master's at Northwestern. And the thing about the public policy, so Northwestern does something a little different where they have an MPPA degree and I really think that you know there are two main sections that I see people kind of break off into which is the nonprofit sector and going government and so I wanted to actually talk with a real professor <laughs> from Northwestern someone who actually really understood so much more of the back end of this and had much more experience to talk to you guys about if grad school is the right decision for you and if that's something that you wanted to pursue, especially if you are in the nonprofit field, because that's an answer we don't get a lot. And especially because in nonprofits, we traditionally are set up for lower wages than our for-profit friends. Um, you know, sometimes that investment is a little harder to choke on because, you know, that's that's a longer term loan that we're hanging on to. So it's a really loaded question, especially for people in nonprofits. I wanted to get someone who was much more qualified than just my humble opinion about the subject and enter Bradley Grams. I'm so excited to be able to do this interview with him today and you will see why. But first, as always, we have some announcements. If you are listening to this on the day it's released, it is Cyber Monday. Friends, we've been doing a great sale for the Ona Boutique, um, which is the social enterprise that my partner Mackenzie Lund and I founded um, that really coincides with Operation Alone. So it's two lines of just empowerment-focused, really soft tees and gold bar necklaces. We have the Make an Impact line and the Futures Female line. Everything is 30% off um, until the end of today. We've been doing a Black Friday to Cyber Monday sale. So if you want to rep some of that empowerment, support a small business, support a social enterprise, a woman-owned business, all of these fun things, uh, we would love to have you at the ONA boutique.com and take advantage of that amazing sale. Number two, I am personally running a Black Friday, Cyber Monday, Giving Tuesday sale um, for my consulting services to set you up for 2021. So this is great for anyone who is brand spanking new in the nonprofit field. You're looking to found your organization and get it set up. Or if you're just newer in it and you have something established, um, but you're not really growing you're feeling a little bit stuck and you just need someone to really jet set you on a great path for 2021. So for $100, we will do a 90-minute jumpstart session, uh, just planning your entire strategic plan for the next year. We will talk marketing, social media, branding, emails, donors, fundraising, the whole kit and caboodle. Um, And of course, any questions that you may have in there as well. And number three, it is Giving Tuesday tomorrow. This is huge. This is the 4th of July Sparkler Firework Jamboree Day for nonprofits. Um, Huge day for nonprofits. This, 
I quoted this before, and I'll probably quote it like a thousand more times. Um, last year in 2019, we saw only 26% of people in the U.S. give on Giving Tuesday. Um, however, charitable giving has been up 62% with the pandemic. So my urge to you is if you love a certain nonprofit, if you admire their work, if you admire their mission, understand that that nonprofit has been working triple, quadruple overtime in the pandemic, just like everyone has. I mean, it's a very different work from, you know, essential workers and Lord bless their soul. Um, you know, they've been working so hard to make sure that all of the people that they serve are still being served. They're still getting the, the same high quality service that they are used to. And also that they're probably, depending on the on the nonprofit serving such a larger demographic. Um, you know, they're trying to just serve that many more people, you know, especially if it is uh, with food insecurity, if it's with homelessness, if it's with healthcare, um, so many areas, mental health, goodness gracious. There's so many areas that people really have been working so hard and in such overtime for the pandemic that my urge to you is if you have just even $5 to spare, um, that nonprofit will feel the love on Giving Tuesday. I know that Facebook is doing some really fun initiatives. They upped their charitable giving and matching up to $7 million um, if you donate through a Facebook fundraiser on Giving Tuesday, and that opens up at either 7 a.m. or 8 a.m. Central Time, which is really exciting. Um, in the past, I believe they've capped it at like 2 or $3 million, so this year they really upped it to $7 million in charitable giving, which is amazing. Um, and... If you decide that the organization ready to accept your $5 um, is operational alone, of course, we would love to have you. We will thank you. I promise you everyone on our team is going to do like a full sparkler firework jamboree every time we see a donation come in and double because our sweet friend Jack Chang at the Chang Real Estate Group is matching all cash donations up to $2,000 on Giving Tuesday. So you can do that for any method. We have Facebook fundraisers, Instagram fundraisers. Uh, you obviously can donate on our website at operationalone.net. And you can also um, do it via PayPal. We also are introducing something new this year, which is super fun, which is a texting capability. So if you text ONA to the number 26989, that's ONA, to 26989. Um, you will be in a text conversation with Ona, which is so stinking cool. And uh, you'll also get a direct link right there for Giving Tuesday, which is amazing. So lots of different ways to donate. Um, what I think is super cool and definitely what I'm doing as a human being is setting my alarm and waking up so I can be at the ready at 7 a.m. Um, and I will be making my Facebook all of my Facebook donations at 7 a.m. So in theory... If you're kind of nutty like me and you do that, um, that would be super cool because <laughs> because then, like, let's say that you donate $20 on Facebook, then Facebook will match that, so now you have $40, and for Ona, Jack Chang will also match that, so now it's $60, and I just think that that's so stinking cool. So really, you're giving $20, but you're having a $60 impact on Giving Tuesday, and I just think that that's super cool. So... All of my announcements, um, of course, I have to end this as I do every week with please, please, please rate, review, subscribe, rate, review, subscribe. Um, they mean the world to me, not just like emotionally, because, um, you know, I'm an Enneagram type two, wing three. We love the emotions. Um, it really helps the success of this podcast. It helps it grow. It helps other people find it and find this goodness and this love and this information. I ask for it every week, and I will continue to ask for it every week. Um, just think, honestly, of, like, hitting a five-star review. Like, you are paying a podcaster for the work that they do for this free content. That's how you just think about it, if you just want to say thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate every single one of them. So that's a wrap on our announcements. It's finally time to talk to Bradley Grams, an adjunct lecturer at Northwestern University, someone who has a robust resume in the government, nonprofit, education, academia fields. Um, he is absolutely fantastic. You guys are so in for a really great treat for this interview. 
Bradley, without any further ado, will you please um, introduce yourself and give us a little bit of your public policy um, Northwestern roadmap? Yeah, so hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Brad Grams. Uh, Susan and I met in Northwestern's Master's in Public Policy and Administration program, where I'm an adjunct lecturer in their microeconomics program, as well as a teaching assistant in their program evaluation and microeconomics for public policy courses. Um, outside of my time at Northwestern, and what Susan and I really want to talk about today is the um, intersection of education, policy, and philanthropy, and, and how that works. Because in my day job, uh, I am an acting associate director for resource planning at the US Environmental Protection Agency out of Washington, DC, where I work with the EPA in creating its budget and strategic plan um, for the White House and Congress and the public. And as part of that work, we really work on trying to maximize impact. And so how does a taxpayer's dollar get the most impact in being spent? And so I work with a lot of senior leaders, people on the Hill, people in the White House to make sure that every dollar we spend goes to make the most impact to the environment that we can. And then outside of that, I spend a lot of time mentoring new people in the environmental and sustainability sphere, be it nonprofits, foundations, government, or industry to help them enter the field of sustainability and environment, but also develop their career. So I mentor for the EPA itself, as well as um, run two programs out of Northwestern um, University, where I mentor um, graduate and undergraduate students looking at sustainability in the environment. And then I also support University of Chicago in the same way um, through their Institute of Politics um, and helping people explore sustainability and environment careers and how they can make an impact in that in that space mm-hmm. so that's a little bit about me um <laughs> I, i'm from wisconsin originally uh so susan and i both share wisconsin bond i moved to chicago for undergrad for the university of chicago i started epa there then went to northwestern same program susan and i met in i was in that program graduated from there moved to dc i've been in dc ever since yeah Obviously, you've had a, a vast like array of different experiences, which I love, which is why I'm so excited to talk to you today. Um, one of the things I really would love to talk about is, and I feel like we have three pillars of this this interview that we want to do, and kind of starting with your government agency experience with the EPA. Um, first of all, I know that you are doing this entire interview speaking as Citizen Brad, um, and this is not in a you know, a, a professional capacity, but you talked a lot about your mentoring, um, you know, programs and abilities to bring new and young people into the sustainability field and kind of with the EPA. So I want to talk about, since this podcast is really geared towards younger people that are usually starting their career, like what does some of that look like? You know, what are you looking for and how are you working with young people to kind of get them into that sustainability field? Well, that's a great question. So one term of art as of late has been the pipeline term. So one thing I've spent a lot of time with at, at EPA, as well as at Northwestern, University of Chicago, and other institutions where I um, met with students, is we really talk about a pipeline for a career in the environment or sustainability. So you know, you've discovered either in high school or earlier, or maybe even just college, that you want to go into that particular policy space. Um, And we've been thinking about how can we build um, a platform and a place for students to commingle, network, start building their careers early so that when they're getting ready to graduate, they're well prepared. They have, you know, materials to bring to an interview, experiences to share. Um, And so starting that mentoring and career development and job coaching before they're even in the job um, early on. Um, so that's one thing as a mentor we've really focused on, um, is trying to get them not only just internships, but valuable networking and personal connections, um, early so that when jobs come up, they're known in the field, people are aware of them. Yeah, for sure. So let's talk about that a little bit. Cause I think sometimes, you know, particularly in our current political environment, which is a little, a little hostile, you know, people, can it can give people an opportunity to either 
bury their head in the sand and not want to look at anything political or really take charge and enter these fields and see a lot of the differences that they want to make. So how can someone do that if they don't have a portfolio or people aren't really aware of them, like they're trying really new to break into a new space like that? Well, great, great question. Um, So, you know, I don't think it's really that political. As someone who's been in the environmental field for a long time, there's the political you see on the news, but then there's the actual field. And um, to your point, one thing that we've really worked on in the academic space, as well as in the mentoring space, is pulling out the politics completely in the sense of when we're talking about the policy. And that's actually easier to do than people think. And so you'll see whether it's at University of Chicago at the Institute of Politics or at Northwestern, we bring in a lot of different voices together to meet, to talk about an issue from kind of a spectrum of positions and then let students or people who are pivoting, who are alumni, kind of meet and network with the people whose positions best fit with them or that interest them. And using that as a starting point for what you're talking about, how to get involved. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, even if you are really political, I mean, one thing, like working on the Hill and working with the White House on things, you can be political, but still have great relationships across parties. And, you know, and being in the civil service myself, people know each other. There are relationships outside of what you see on the news and talking about policy. It's, it's much more collegial than people think it is. Mm-hmm. I love that you said that because I think sometimes the media, and I, I don't care what you know, form of media people look at just like in general, it seems like everyone on different sides is like has pitchforks and torches when talking to the other side. So kind of knowing that it's a lot more, um, you know, friendly and, and diplomatic in real life, I think is very helpful and a really good thing for people to know. So thank you for saying that. And following what you just mentioned, you know, people say like, oh, it must be horrible being at EPA in this environment, or it must be horrible teaching policy in this environment. I'm like, not really. I mean, it's no different than any other time. And if you look through America's history, there are many times that have been similar to this. I think just with the amount of media and technology we have these days, it's just more in our face than it would have been 100 years ago or 50 years ago. Yeah, I like that too, because I I also feel like because we have, you know, news dripping in every single second, it seems so much worse than people realize that in history, this is pretty on par with (laughs) how things have usually felt. So I'm glad that you kind of pointed that out too, because I think this feels more, um, you know, like everything's on fire (laughs) than it really is. So thank you for that. So much of this podcast is geared at the nonprofit and the social enterprise field. And a lot of the people we've spoken with have nonprofit experience. So can you speak a little bit of how different it is to just work for more of a, a government agency? My perception is that it's a little bit more structured. Um, You know, you guys have a little bit more like rules that you have to follow with than a nonprofit does. Um, Can you speak to any of that if I'm on the money or totally off with that? (laughs) Um, Yeah. yeah. So uh, you're not totally off. Um, I think one of the biggest distinctions between nonprofit work and government work is in government, you're provided a budget. Like you're just given money to perform tasks by Congress. They're pretty specific. And so government's organized to accomplish those tasks or it reorganizes itself to do so. Um, so that's, that it's very formulaic. And while there is strategic planning and there is a budgeting process, at the same time, it isn't um, as free and open. Um, whereas in a nonprofit situation or a not-for-profit, you have the ability to update your mission as you need. You have a little more freedom in how to structure yourself. And um, perhaps most importantly, you know, you don't, you're not tethered into having to have the same employees and the same structure every day, um, which is great. Um, the only negative and the difference is in a nonprofit, you're really dependent on bringing in your own donations, your own funding, mm-hmm. and that can be challenging in a different way. And that's a challenge I don't have being in government. For sure. 
which is a super good point because I think a lot of times our biggest focus is fundraising and then how we can put that towards the work, but you guys can kind of just get to work a little bit faster, which is definitely interesting. Um, you've obviously been with the EPA for a long time. How many years again? So I've been with EPA for 15 years. I okay. was at Department of Energy as a contractor and a fellow for about a year and a half. And before that, I was at Department of Education, Chicago Public Schools grantee. So I've kind of been in that space for about 20 years total. Okay. Um, yeah, so it's been, it's been a while. But in that time, I've worked with NGOs or not-for-profits alongside my government work. So it's never been independent of that. Yeah. I've also worked with industry as well. For sure. So um, thank you for pointing that out because I didn't think um, it had been that many years. But I was wondering if you can speak to like something that you wish you would have known about this field before you entered it or something that just really surprised you once you started really getting into this work. Uh, government or nonprofit or both? <laughs> or both. Why not? Let's do both. Oh, sure. So on the government side, you know, as much as I just said that, you know, we're provided a budget, um, what I didn't realize is just like an NGO, but in a different way, you have to show your value um, in very specific, discrete ways. And it's one thing I didn't really know coming into government. You know, when you're in school, they don't really tell you about how you as a government organization strategically plan and budget, at least in undergrad, it's, it's not always well-defined. Government's a very nebulous thing. And I, in that time, I was volunteering with a lot of NGOs, not-for-profits that supported government work. And I saw more on the outside and in, you know, quote, real world environments that the interaction is much more fluid than you'd think. But at the same time, it's very relationship dependent. And I wish I had known earlier in my career the value of relationships over degrees even more than I did. Not to say that I never valued people or didn't build connections, but you know, as much as education is important and work experience is important, having real strong, well-established personal relationships and connections with organizations and institutions is critical mm -hmm. to be successful, yeah. more than education. Which I think kind of goes back to, I think we hear a lot, you know, networking is always key and a lot of it is who you know. So it's funny that that is kind of across the board and across industries, it's a little bit still true. Yeah. And, you know, people take it in a dark way. Um, like, you know, oh, it's, it's who you know, not what you know. And that's a bad thing. And I, I always emphasize it's not, I'm not saying it in a sort of nepotistic way. Mm-hmm. I mean it more in a, you have relationships with people, you have established credibility, they know you deliver, and by knowing you deliver, they're more confident in giving you more responsibility, promotions, developmental opportunities. It's more real to them what you do. Yeah. So it's not really just the who you know, it's that established credibility and trust in that space and how that is currency for your future. Well, and I think that's important also to note too, because, you know, I think sometimes it's really easy to think, and I don't know if this is a social media world or if we, if people have always been like this, it's so easy to get into our own heads and think like what I'm doing is like so important and so specific. And we almost get it into our heads that we're working in a silo, but we're not like everything ripples out. Everything is about teams and relationship building. And that's how you do kind of get seen for a different promotion or things like that. So I think that's a really important distinction. And I appreciate that you said that. We know that you're strong and empowered. We know that you want to make an incredible impact on this world. And thankfully, there's an online boutique for you to represent that message every day. The Ona Boutique has two lines of t-shirts and engraved gold bar necklaces to remind you that you're capable of incredible impact on this world. And the proceeds benefit Operation Not Alone, a Wisconsin-based nonprofit supporting our troops, veterans, and mental health initiatives all across the country. Head to theonaboutique.com to shop their collections and get free shipping with the code IMPACT. That's theonaboutique.com and use code IMPACT. You mentioned about, um, you know, these relationships versus um, just the education that you have. However, 
um, you have a lot of really wonderful education underneath you and experiences with wonderful universities. Uh, like you said, Northwestern is, is where we got to meet. So can you, transitioning into a conversation about grad school, I get asked a lot, um, being just a few months out with my master's degree, you know, a lot about the MPPA program, about, you know, what, what kind of those goals were and why that's, it's almost like necessary to go into a field like this. So that's a conversation I want to have. So first and foremost, as a, as a lecturer, can you explain to people the overall goal of the MPPA program? Yeah, sure. So I'm um, speaking really broadly to the topic, uh, not as Northwestern, but as an MPPA program, theoretically. So MPPs or masters in public policy have always been more toward the theoretical, the political science side of the spectrum, looking at how policies develop, how they succeed, um, kind of the theory in developing an organization. It's very the front end infancy of policy. And masters in public administration tend to be more the implementation or back end once the policy has been developed, how you administer a program thoughtfully, how you administer a government agency thoughtfully. It's more on like making it work operationally. And so the idea between in an MPPA program is that it's, it's the best of both worlds. We speak to how policy gets developed and we do get into the theory of public policy and the political science angles, but we also highlight the needs to have coherent operational structures to succeed. And so part of why Northwestern has the MPPA as opposed to just an MPA or just an MPP is Northwestern really wants to emphasize that they're looking holistically at the totality of what a government organization or an NGO or a not-for-profit is going to do. And it's not just going to develop policy, but it's also going to work to make sure that policy happens and it's done properly. And um, it, it follows norms. And so that's why we call it an MPPA as opposed to an MPA or an MPP. Mm-hmm. Which so is that helps kind of explain unique. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it is super unique, and I really like the style and the format of the program for that reason, Mm -hmm. because you do get both ends of what a government agency is involved with. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And also, I find many students are so focused on one end or the other, like they've either been in an NGO or government implementing for years, and the MPA part's kind of boring because they do it. And so the public policy part is really where they learn. Mm-hmm. And then you have people who've worked like on the Hill or in Congress or in a state legislature or for like a mayor developing policy, but not getting to actually implement it. And so you get a lot of really great networking because you have these two sets of people on two ends of the spectrum, finally meeting and talking and learning together. Yeah, for sure. I What I found really interesting when I was a student um, and I did the entire program online, which... <laughs> fits right into the world we have today. (laughs) Um, You know, with the discussion boards and with just trying to like introduce people and do some of that group work, which obviously was really challenging in an online format. But what I found interesting was that every one of our students, and we had a pretty small cohort, all of our classes were quite small, but everyone had such a diverse background. Like people, I I saw people who came right from undergrad, people who had um, business and economic degrees, people who had a lot of government experience. Some people had law degrees and were coming back for, you know, this is an extra thing. Like people were so diverse in it. And so I think the goals of the program, sometimes I think that's where people can get even a little confused because, you know, it's not like getting an MBA where it's like people are like, okay, you're going into business. We understand that. We got it. So yeah, can you talk a little bit about how like it does speak to everyone? Because policy does, in a way, affect everyone and everything. Oh, absolutely. Um, and speaking to that, I think this gets to your education question as well. You know, when we're talking public policy and administration, you anyone can be involved in policy. I can never emphasize that enough, whether speaking as someone who works in government, or in education. Education is important, but never feel that because you don't have a degree in a certain area, you just can't be involved. Mm -hmm. Um, Because quite frequently, some of the best ideas come from people who aren't in the space every day. 
Mm-hmm. Um, they're seeing it from a new angle we've never saw before. And getting to your point about the diversity of um, educational backgrounds, I think that's what makes our program so you know great because there are lawyers in the classes. And frequently lawyers have the judicial branch's view of government mm-hmm. without realizing how a government office is actually going to implement a law, you know, or that a ruling may not make sense because that's not how the program works. Um, So, you know, lawyers learn a lot from that perspective. Um, People right out of undergrad may be pivoting, you know? So Mm -hmm. in a lot of cases, they may have like an econ degree, but they realize they want to work in government. So it's a great pivot degree. And in my case, I had 10 years experience coming into the program, Mm. Um, but I knew I wanted to build up general public administration experience. I had the policy side. I didn't have the public administration side. Mm-hmm. And so for me, that was important. Yeah. Um, but it can answer all those calls. And that's why I'm not a believer in just going for a degree for a degree. You know, you come in because there's something you want to do to develop yourself and impact yourself so you can make impact on society in the way you want to. And so that degree may have different meaning to you than to me than to someone else. And that's okay mm-hmm. because it's really about your development, not, you know, someone else. Yeah. What I thought was really funny was, you know, we would have, you know, big in-class discussions and debates about, and I'm just going to pull out something that I think was even in one of your classes with microeconomics was taxes. And it was like, how are we, or even for that and program evaluation, it was like, okay, well, here's, here's the program that this, you know, whatever we were working on that week, if it was an NGO, um, you know, a government agency, whatever. And it was like, well, how are we going to fix like the budget for this program if this is what we're going to try and, you know, expand and evolve. And it was like watching people um, you know, tactfully debate the idea of taxes and where more of that like funding is coming from. But you saw like lawyers argue it from this angle. And then people who have worked in government for forever, who almost seemed a little bit more, and I don't mean this disrespectfully, but like robotic about it because they're like, well, yeah, that's where this all comes from. This is that. And then you had people from a even like I think a counseling background that were like, wait a minute, no. And it was just so interesting to watch the debates of how everyone in such vast backgrounds talked about something like taxes and how we're going to pay for all of the programs that come out. Yeah. And well, you know, we're all philanthropists, right? Like at right. the end of the day, really, our taxes are a form of philanthropy. Um, in some ways, it's better to think of it that way, because I think people have a better opinion of programs and they realize the taxes aren't just taking away from you they're going towards some other social program that society you know, wants or needs or desired at some point. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm always like really turned in and interested into those um, debates because you see people look at it from so many different angles. Mm-hmm. But I think it's great for this call because really it shows the philanthropy side of government. People mm-hmm. expect an ROI, return on investment. They expect to see a lot of things in their way. And so you're dealing with citizens as donors, really. And yeah, and a lot of bureaucrats are very robotic because they're like, look, your elected official decided this, not me. Like, go see him. Um, So there's a lot of that going on because in some ways they're just cogs in the machine, um, but they may have opinions on it. Um, So yeah, no, I think it's great you bring this up because people demand different things as donors and you see that come out as a taxpayer and the way people debate every program we talk about. I have never, ever heard someone (laughs) associate tax dollars with essentially being donor dollars and that your taxes are your way of of contributing to philanthropy. That kind of um, blew my mind. And I love that you said that. It's a sort of mandatory. If we all looked at it like that, it would be so different. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I always call it mandatory philanthropy. At the end of the day, everyone has to pay tax dollars, but in a lot of ways, it's mandatory philanthropy. Um, And we're all donating to things we love and we hate because Congress decides as a group the things that we as a society will fund, right? And then there's the ones we love, which we want everyone to fund more of that someone else hates and doesn't want to fund. And I always think of our federal budget as really donor dollars. It is what... Mm-hmm. is decided as society's donation to government to function and how government should support everyone. 
it's a really a big NGO. I think too that you know even just having that view on it would make people I think in general look at government as a whole a little bit more empathetically as opposed to and I don't even know if I'm going to say the right word with this but um people just get very hostile they get very um I don't want to say the word entitled and I might swap that out later because I don't think that's what the word I'm looking for is but you know people get mad because then they start expecting certain things and demanding certain things of their tax dollars the way they would never do with you know, a, a traditional nonprofit that they just handed $20 to, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, what's funny is, you know, I, I develop EPA's budget. So even at the environmental level, right, um, some people really care about the Superfund program and cleaning up contaminated sites so that we can make money on the properties. Other people care about air pollution and think that's the most important. So even within an agency or a policy area, Different people and their Congress people see priorities very differently, even at that micro level. Mm-hmm. And they all see those tax dollars as going to the thing they want. Mm-hmm. Well, and something else to that, and this was a really big part of you know my time in the program, especially the last the last year and the last like two quarters that I had was uh, learning how anyone. A, can be a part of this this process and have their voice in government, but also something like writing a policy memo really is you as, you know, an individual, a business, a nonprofit, whatever, um, you know, phrasing to the person who is like, like, you know, distributing these tax dollars to just being basically like a really persuasive speaker. You're like, this is why this is really important to me. This is why, you know, I want you, you know, my elected official to look at this like a little bit differently because, you know, maybe air pollution is, you know, more of, of what I think is, is more important. And, and I would advocate for you to look at it this way instead of maybe this way. And I think that was a really eye-opening experience of how, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's donor dollars, it's donations, but it's also like persuading someone to understand just like that different perspective from, again, an empathetic spot. Um, I think it's really easy to like vilify government when you don't understand that there's there's a lot of heart that's operating underneath it. Oh, uh, no, I, I totally agree. But, you know, following on this, I'm so glad you brought up policy memos because mm-hmm. this is something for the new people out there. I'm going to blow people's minds. Yeah. Uh, I am one of your professors or lecturers or TAs who will say, I'm never impressed by policy memos. And it's not because I don't think they're important. Like you said, they are important. Mm -hmm. But one thing I emphasize in classes or when I'm mentoring people in the workforce is policy memos are actually the end of the pipeline in most cases. They are not the first thing you do. Um, In fact, the most effective lobbyists, philanthropists, um, development directors, the letters like the last thing. Um, in a lot of cases, it's the networking that comes in before that, the verbal interactions, getting them interested in the policy ahead of time, um, making sure you have a drip drop of information so they're constantly knowledgeable of that policy and why it's important. Mm. That is actually more important than the memo itself. Um, My issue as an educator is I think academia overemphasizes policy memos and underemphasizes the personal dynamic. Mm. Um, and like calling legislators, uh, meeting with legislators informally, seeing them out on the campaign trail and actually talking about a policy in those spaces can get you a lot more buy-in than just sending memos in the night, you know? And Mm. also in government, memos are the end of the pipeline. That's the decision memo, really. It's not, that memo is really reflecting a decision of prior dialogues and documents and discussions prior to that point. Um, It's not really the first thing. Okay. No, and yeah, that's a very important distinction. Yeah, I like that. Um, One thing, switching gears a little bit that I would like to talk about, and I know this this might be a little tricky from the the educator perspective of it, but again, uh, you know, this podcast has a very young demographic. And so I want to talk a little bit about people who... Uh, you know, are really debating with like, do I need a master's degree? Like, should I go to grad school? Number one, I think a lot of people do it as a 
how do I say this? Uh, almost like a, like a time buyer, you know, they're like, well, I'm not really sure what to do yet. I'll just kind of go to grad school or, uh, you know, this will probably make me look a lot more impressive. So I should add, you know, this and get the couple of fancy letters behind my name on my resume. Um, you know, talk a little bit from the perspective of, because you, you said this earlier that the point of, of education should really be to better oneself. And I think we said this before we started recording, but not treating it like monopoly, like you're just picking up pieces uh, to get to go. So let's start talking about that. Like, where do you think that like a master's degree can be really necessary in the experience of grad school um, is really needed in a person's life and, and professional career path? So, um, First of all, I think education is incredibly important, and I want to emphasize that it can be in very different places for different people. Um, speaking to degrees more specifically, before anyone, you know, I think we should do it more for undergrad than we do as a society, but I really encourage the folks I mentor to actually do visioning exercises of where they want to be in their future. Like where, like, if, you know, we were fast forwarding today, and I don't give them a time range, like, I don't say, like, five years from now or something like that, but, like, in your ideal world, where do you see yourself making the most impact, being the most happy, and feeling the most fulfilled? And, like, what do they see? Like, what would they be doing? Where would that be? What level um, within an organization? Or are they doing work for a lot of organizations? But starting there, and then when they tell me about like where they see themselves, finding the education and training that gets them to where they want to be and kind of reverse engineering it. I think a lot of times people think of it like, oh, I gotta go to undergrad, I gotta go to Ivy League school because that's where everyone goes and that's where the most important people go. And then I'll know from that what's next. And people look at school as telling them what's next. And what I try to do is flip it around um, where do you see yourself? What would you like to do? And then you'll find in a lot of cases, getting into the school you want is far easier and you're better placed to do it. Um, now, I'm talking about school here, but I should emphasize it's also training. Sometimes grad school isn't what you need. You may need a certificate program. Um, like you may need an HR certificate, not a degree. Um, or you may need on-the-job training with your agency or NGO where you actually learn how your institution does that work for where you vision yourself going. So it may not be formal education, maybe more informal. Mm -hmm. And then there's also people where they have the education, but they don't have the contacts, right? So then there are some people where they have too much education. I have a lot of students who have too much education, not enough um, connections and networks. Mm. So they can't get a job for a totally different reason. <laughs> mm. Interesting. I think everything of what you just said was so important, so impactful. And you're right. I do wish as a society, we did that more. I, and I love that you do vision casting with people because that's something I've just learned how to do like within this last year. And I wish I always knew how to do it um, is really just figuring out exactly. And I think the other thing too with with a lot of the people that I know is like, what also do you want? Not what other people yes. are telling you that you want, you know, or your parents, you know, being like, oh, well, you go to school, get a good job, become a doctor. You know, it's like, it's like, what do you want? Like, what is in your future? Like, how are you going to be happy, you know, with, with your career, with whatever, and then kind of reverse engineer from that and see what you actually need. I am so glad you brought that up. So I don't know if this will help some of the people on your podcast, but mm -hmm. me personally, I had this experience. So my parents very much expected me to be a physician. Mm. So even when I was in high school, I was really into environmental classes. I really liked doing NGO work that supported government um, initiatives in the environment. And I was always interested in it. But my parents really pushed me into the pre-med path. Like, oh, you got to be a physician. Look at your uncle and your mentor at high school. They're all physicians. You should be one too. So I came into my undergrad experience at University of Chicago being total pre-med. That's what I need to do. And my first two years of undergrad were really unhappy mm -hmm. um, because it really wasn't what I wanted to do. And I was feeling like I was in a rat race. And even though I had great grades, it, I didn't feel it. None mm -hmm. of it felt authentic. 
And I ended up by accident, my freshman year, falling into an environmental chemistry class that I had room to take. And it was all about monitoring pollutants in the environment and measuring them in animals. And it was like the most, it was the most interesting class to me. And I loved it. Mm. And I, it got me pivoting. So it got me thinking. And my biggest regret, and it's not a regret, but looking back, had I pivoted more to the environment then, as opposed to waiting another year and seeing it through and seeing I didn't want to be a pre-med for sure, I would have been so much happier. Mm-hmm. And I, I would have had a better placement for grad school. Right. I think it's funny because I didn't I didn't know that that physician bit. So when I said <laughs> become a doctor, I wasn't trying to single you out there. That was a coincidence. Um, but that is really funny because I think a lot of people do that. They feel super lost and they're like, well, this is what, you know, people, you know, whether it is my parents or, you know, whoever, you know, told me to do because it would make the most money or it would have job security or whatever. And they never really stop to think like, but am I going to be happy at age 50, <laughs> you know, or am I just going to be like counting down the days until retirement <laughs> and I can start doing something else? Totally. Um, so and there's also a misconception. Yeah, and there's also a misconception that um, being a doctor and a lawyer is just immediately gratifying and you're going to be happy. And I have tons of friends who are doctors and lawyers, and a lot of them are more jealous of what I do now because I have a more flexible work-life balance. Mm. Um, They think the work's more interesting. A lot of lawyers don't realize the pay isn't as great as people say it is. But there's a lot of things to think about in that space. Um, Mm. Because there's these, ex- these expectations that society imposes and then people go into these careers and they realize, oh, wait, it really wasn't that great or it wasn't a good fit for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm so glad you brought this up. Yeah, I love it. I So something else I, I want to, <laughs> I'm going to ask you. And so I had a friend, um, a very close friend recently asked me, um, you know, she's very torn with some of her career things haven't been working out and granted we're all in our early twenties, but she was like, you know, I'm really thinking about going and getting, um, a a master's degree. And she was kind of grabbing the one that like I had, and she's like, well, will this be a good idea for me? And I want you to tell me if the advice I gave her was bad or good (laughs) and correct (laughs) me if it was bad. Um, I said, I was like, well, what do you want to do with it? I was like, what is your dream job? Like, what are you going after? And it was the director of communications for this, um, a really big, nonprofit, like a, a, a really established one. And I said to her, I was like, okay, well, if that's the dream job, I would research the person that's currently in it. And the probably like, you know, similar, you know, nonprofits, people in that role, um, but kind of study that person. Like, do they have all these degrees that they needed? Did they have a lot of experience? Did they have a portfolio that they kind of came in with of, you know, certain campaigns that they had done, donor relations, things like that. And I was like, and if that's part of it, you know, then maybe sure look at it. And I even suggested to her to reach out to that person and say like, you know, a little bit like, where did you get, how did you get to where you were today? Like would, would getting a master's degree, like help me um, get to this point faster if you have my dream job. And I have no idea if she took that or did not take that, but is that, was that good advice? Was that bad advice? Can you? I think, it, I think it's really good advice. Okay. I'm glad you brought up portfolios. Um, okay. This is another great thing to talk about on the call. Okay. A lot of, um, students I mentor are like, what do you mean portfolio? Mm. And I'm like, well, you have your resume and your cover letter, but then you get to the interview. You know, your resume and cover letter gets you the interview. So then you get to the interview and you're going to get probing questions about how you operate as yourself and how you're going to impact their organization. And so I always remind them, like, you should come up with a portfolio of things of how you've impacted other organizations positively. Like, sample materials like if if you're going for communications sample desk statements and press releases Mm -hmm. um be ready to give a you know challenge context achievement results narrative for project you did but you know share a a piece of the project during your interview like actually come with a solid item Mm -hmm. um, because that really blows panels away Mm -hmm. very few people do it because they think it's a big risk like oh what if there's a typo i didn't see before what if they don't like the color of it? Or what if they don't like, you know, the way the other organization, you know, did it? And I said, well, that's not the point. The idea is that you're willing to do it. Right. You're showing you deliver. 
Like it may not be what they wanted, but you know, we never produce everything our management wants exactly how they want it. Better to show that you produce work that you can work with them on than to not have anything to show. Because mm-hmm. um, okay. that's really critical. Yeah. So I think what's funny about that, when I was finishing up my undergrad degree, um, which was at the U- University of Wisconsin Oshkosh, I was in a lot of in the College of Business. And one of the things they were trying to do with like some professional development courses, and they were pretty new as I was, I was leaving the university was um, having students leave with a portfolio and like create one. And they were trying to have students all make like this online portfolio because, you know, they had X amount of internships that were required for graduation. So they had things to go to, to interviews with. And I remember people were just like really kind of against it. And they were like, oh, they're like, you know, like, do I ever really need this? They're like, I feel like other people don't ask for like portfolios, you know, when we get there. So they're like, I'm just not going to do it. So, but like you said, it's especially if if you're going to go for like a higher role, like you have to show the results that you've had before while you have, a, you know, like the right to be at this, this seat, you know? I'm glad you mentioned they don't ask. Because this is what defines leader. And I don't mean this to be in an offensive way, but this is what defines leaders. So if you want to enter a leadership role in a company, it's no longer about, did they ask me to do it? It's about you instituting or instigating leadership on your own. You showing, I can make a document. I did do this because that's what leaders do. You don't wait to be told to make a document you deliver on a document or you prep or you know that your manager or your leader needs more mm-hmm. um, and you work to be ahead of the curve right so it's not just about what they ask for in an interview but also bring stuff to the interview and also ask your own questions mm-hmm. you know interviews are kind of like dating and really job searching is like dating yeah you know you turn in a bunch of apps people swipe right you get an interview and that's kind of your date Mm-hmm. And you see if they're a good fit for you and vice versa. And so make the most of that time mm-hmm. and be yourself and show what you bring to the table. Yeah. I've always heard that the biggest mistake someone can do in an interview is not ask any questions and like reciprocate to the person that you're interviewing with. Um, Cause that's also showing interest. Like you don't want to go on a date where the person doesn't ask you a single thing. <laughs> Because then it seems like they don't care that you're even there, you know? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and, and at the same time, you know, there are, you know, we all have had bad interviews where we probably didn't ask a lot of questions because we knew it wasn't a good, a good fed or, you know, the person wasn't open to questions too. And, mm-hmm. you know, following what you just mentioned, one thing for me, I'm a very social person. I like to have um, a two-way relationship with my management. Um, so when I'm in an interview, if I get the impression they're not, interested in me asking questions they don't really want a leadership opinion i, I kind of know it's probably not a good fit for me it'll probably be a good fit for someone else mm-hmm. um, but that's something you learn in this space you know and you learn by interviewing for sure so i want to ask you and this is a little bit more of a like a selfish question um can you talk a little bit about how so you've gotten a lot of education um, you know, you're you're very well versed and um, obviously intelligent in these fields. And you recently went back to Northwestern t- in a teaching capacity. So can you talk a little bit about that? Like why you wanted to go back as a lecturer as, you know, kind of uh, like put the shoe on the other foot, I guess. Oh, yeah. So um, I've been mentoring people in the environmental field since well before I was in grad school. Um, and so I really, I really liked helping people meet their full potential in the sustainability field and the energy field and the environment field. That's always been something that beyond making impacts in these areas myself, I wanted to bring other people into the field and get them also making impactful um, decisions and actions. So that's something I was interested in prior to being a lecturer prior to grad school, right? Mm-hmm. But um, when I was in grad school, I noticed that at times part of it being academia, part of it being people who do research, the discussion of what actually happens in governments and NGOs and industry um, isn't always discussed as robustly as it could be. And so when there were opportunities to be a part-time lecturer or a TA to really help others in the academic space, 
you know, elucidate these experiences within the classroom, I really wanted to take on that opportunity because I felt, at least when I was in classes, that there was a discussion of how government worked or how an NGO worked, but it didn't always, like the book didn't always match reality. And I wanted to bring in more of the reality that you see and put it against the theory that we're reading about so that people can kind of compare and contrast what we think the ideal is and what happens um, out there. Because that's really important as part of graduate education. Mm -hmm. And about how to just do research is knowing how people actually behave. So you ask the right questions and you do the right data collection to do quality research. And so that's why I wanted to go back. And that's why I'm lecturing now. And yeah. my, big, my big question for myself that I'm still struggling with is, you know, I'd like to do a doctoral program, but the cost and the time is so high and I can still make an impact with my master's degree in lecturing now. Mm-hmm. So something I balance in my head is, is it worth it to continue for a dissertation? Um, or is it not? Is that, is that like, as an economist would say, not net benefit? Mm. Um, so, you know, we all face these questions. Everything you're asking, I ask myself, you know, every day. Yeah. Well, and it's just helpful, I think, for a lot of, again, like this this audience, um, just you being in, in a different position than that. Because I think so many people are just starting with like, do I do it at all? <laughs> and not asking some of these these questions and really weighing those pros and cons. So I appreciate this so much. Um, you know, it was a selfish question because obviously at the end of my time of Northwestern, I started to have a little little idea in the back of my mind where I was like how do I ever like teach a class <laughs> especially somewhere like Northwestern so I've always wondered how people even get into like the teaching professor roles you know I'm really uh, just like with networking you reach out when you're done with the program that you're in mm-hmm. um, frankly I want to do more in community college um, I think one of the missing gaps in public policy education is actually at community and junior colleges um, with people who are engaged in policy in different ways that have a lot of practical knowledge to share that doesn't get the training it needs. And so like I've started networking more in that zone myself. Um, oh, love that. But just like, just like with um, careers, it's the same thing. If you wanna get a side gig teaching, start networking, start reaching out. My best friend's father-in-law was lecturing for years and I was finishing my program and I said how did you do it and he said literally Brad I just started writing people and I turned in my resume and I just made conversations sometimes you don't even wait for the job opening you just write people and start the dialogue yeah um yeah and you know following on what you mentioned earlier about people who wait to be asked one piece of advice I got from one of my mentors early on is don't wait you know make your own job opening if you're in an organization and you see an opportunity to lead, or if you see an opportunity for a job that isn't posted, you know, meet with your senior leaders, talk with them about the idea. You may end up writing your own opening for yourself. Oh. Don't wait for the opening to exist. Love you know? that. Holy cow. Love that a lot. That's awesome. I, yeah. And I, I agree. I had a very small like experience with that when I was in the for-profit sector just in the last two years where I was kind of sitting in a, in a sales role for a while. And I was, I was a fine salesperson. Like my numbers were always good. Um, and my boss could tell it's just like, I wasn't really happy doing that. Like I needed to pay my rent, (laughs) which is why I was doing it. But like, he could tell I wasn't happy. And all of a sudden, and he kind of came at me with like, you know, we've never really had someone more in a marketing role. You know, I think that your skill sets would be more applicable to that. And he was like, would you even just enjoy that more? But I could have also taken that to my, like upon myself and said, be like, we don't have this huge department, like a very fundamental department, like within this company, I think I'd be really great at it. You know, I think there's a lot more opportunities to create something for yourself when you do see a need or a gap um, than people give give it credit for and this goes with the whole who you knew who you know mattering more than what you know Mm -hmm. because sometimes it's just that dialogue that creates the opening that you basically invented that you're filling and people may say oh it's because you know susan knew all those people but really you kind of created the role and you probably are best qualified because you worked with them you created it you're the best fit 
Um, yeah. And that's why a lot of things happen that way. A lot of times people have created their own roles and don't even know they did. Um, so, so it's just food for thought. Yeah, no, I love that. Um, I have really just one last question that I want to ask you. And it's, it's not in either of these topics, actually, but because you wear so many different hats um, in the impact business, from, from mentoring people to being a lecturer to being at the EPA and all these things, um, especially right now with the pandemic, with the political environment, with all these things, like how are you preventing like help or burnout as a, as a person, as an individual? Well, so initial disclaimer, uh, my boyfriend and I are horrible workaholics. So I'm always <laughs> like, we're both me and my boyfriend are like workaholics. We work all the time. And so I'm probably the worst to ask about burnout. Okay. Not because, <laughs> not because I haven't burnt out. I do. But I'm one of those horrible people where I burn myself out and don't even know it. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So... Like I am horrible to ask in the sense that I many times burnt myself out previously in my life, not even knowing I had, um, but lessons learned from those experiences. Um, I would say, do what you like to do. And that sounds horribly cliche, mm-hmm. but um, I find if you are doing jobs you like that you feel you're impacting well in, and you're working to do activities that you want to do, not just things that you're checking a box on, burnout isn't as much of an issue. Um, Also, I should add, you know, I do a lot of distance learning, digital learning. And so with the pandemic, while most people are like, I don't know what I'm gonna do at home, I just spend more time teaching and building materials for my students. So I'm not burning out like a lot of other people are because I had, you know, home-based work to do. Um, But for those of you who are like struggling with being inside the house, I would encourage you to find things outdoors, whether it's additional physical fitness, just being sure you take care of yourself and are making sure you get plenty of rest and kind of subdividing your day so that there's some control to it. And then just asking other people, you know, making sure that you keep bonds with other people. I think one of the best ways to know if you're burning out or if you need time is by really continuing relationships with your colleagues and friends and making sure they're okay. Mm-hmm. And, and, and in the same vein, having them make sure you're okay. Because a lot of times when I knew I was getting close to being burnt out in my life, it was not me who knew first because of my personality type. It was usually my colleagues Um, or others and Mm -hmm. so a lot of times for me that's a better indicator because of just how I think and how I work Um, so I'm really open to always talking with people about how they're doing and how I'm doing because it's just kind of how I roll and as a as a manager and as someone who's a team leader within EPA um, I always do 360 assessments as part of preventing burnout for both my team and and myself Mm -hmm. you know am I covering everything okay is there anything you need from me um, do you feel you're burning out? Does it look like I'm burning out? Um, do we need to take a break and think through an activity a little more? But I think yeah. these are important things to have as far as preventing burnout. Okay. I like that. I just, I always like asking people about kind of what they're doing to protect themselves and their inner peace, because I think so often it's like, oh, it's like, well, I did a face mask and I had a bubble bath and now all my stress in life is gone. And it's like, no, 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 no. Like that's not how like burnout and self-care actually looks. So I think a lot of what you said was really very important um, and hard questions because those aren't short-term solutions, right? Like ask well, yeah. yourself, like where where you are, how happy are you in this in this career, what you're doing every day. That's a it's a very long-term thing that people have to work on if it's out of calibration. Well, I love that you asked the question the way you did because I think a lot of us don't know we're burning out. Hmm. Um, even with my friends who are much more connected with themselves, like I have friends who are yoga instructors who do mindfulness as part of their their career and even they'll point out you know you yourself don't always know um and that's why it's so important to have relationships and kind of getting back to the beginning of our talk today mm-hmm. that's why it's so important to network but not just networking for your career but also just having relationships with people getting out there meeting new people getting new ideas because 
a lot of times that also prevents burnout. Mm. Um, you're getting exposed to things. You're looking at your life differently and you're, you're thinking about how to improve yourself in the context of your friends and your relationships and what they're doing, you know? Oh, I love that. Brad, this has been so fantastic. The amount of like wisdom nuggets that came out of this interview are amazing. Um, I can't wait to put this out there for people. So thank you so much for taking the time. And um, also just to put this (laughs) out there too, like you spent a lot of time kind of preparing for these questions. You were making sure these were very thoughtful and it really shows. So just thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate it. Oh, no, it was my pleasure. And, you know, one thing, you know, is part of the, your, your Impact podcast series. Like, if anything, I hope everyone learns, say, from what Susan and I are talking about, that beyond just looking to impact society and other people, like, really think about how to improve yourself. Like, with the burnout questions, with your self-development questions, think about how you're going to positively impact yourself and how others can positively impact you mm. so that you can improve your impacts um, outside whether at work, at home, with your family, wherever that is. Mm -hmm. And practice vision casting with where you actually want to be in your life. (laughs) Yes. And if we were doing like even more program evaluation, I'd get into community asset mapping stuff, which is even more exciting, but just like vision casting. Well done. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Again, this has been such a treat. Thank you so much, Brad. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the Make an Impact Podcast. If you enjoyed yourself, would you do a little rate, review, subscribe dance? And if you really enjoyed yourself, would you share this on social media so someone else could catch the impact bug? Until next time, friend, I can't wait to see what kind of impact you make on your world.